Colonial Woods Missionary Church presents Keys to Confident Living. Amen. Amen. Can you give the Lord a hand this morning as you're seated? Praise the Lord. You're able to be seated. And would you do me a favor? Look at somebody who's sitting close to you and say, you look especially good for a Sunday morning. Would you do that? You look especially good. You look good. Great to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to take them. Turn to Genesis chapter 18. We're going to launch into a new series today called Show and Tell. And it really is, uh, the, the catch line is how to live a contagious faith. My first catch line was how to talk about Jesus without looking weird. But I, I decided to kind of tone it down a little bit. The whole idea is to show our faith, live our faith, and then we get a chance to talk about our faith. And so many times we're intimidated when we want to talk about our faith, and, and we're just going to talk over the next five or six weeks together, just giving some encouragement, strategies, and just simple ways to be able to just live our lives in such a way that it invites the conversation about who Christ is, show and tell. Obviously, show and tell, that strikes back to some of our childhood days. How many of you, when you were in school, you did show and tell? Any of you do that? That about everybody did? Do they still do show and tell? Do they still do that? You know, show and tell. You were something, you were so excited. I think it's usually what, kindergarten, maybe into first grade, maybe into first grade. You're so excited about something that you have that you get to come in once a year. You choose something to bring in and to show the other students, almost brag about it a little bit, and then talk about it. And, and I remember <laughs> 1973. I remember show and tell. I didn't get a lot of toys as a kid. I mean, I'm not, I, I, got, you know, I was cared for, but I, we just had a big family. There wasn't a lot to go around, so you didn't get a lot of stuff. But I remember one, and it was spectacular. Here's the picture. Oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> that is an evil Knievel stunt cycle can I get an amen? amen? Oh, man. I am telling you, Chad, I, you're about the same age as me, right in that ballpark. When we were kids, man, Evil Knievel was it. He was the coolest dude, and whatever he would jump and whatever he'd break, and I don't mean records, I mean his body. He was always breaking something. Boy, I remember Snake Canyon, remember going over the little can. He failed miserably, but man, was it an incredible event. And see the, the, the palace at Caesar Garden, or uh, Caesar's Palace, the, he went over the fountain there. I think he crashed there too. I think he broke about everything. But I remember, man, I got this thing, I think 1973, 1974, and it was the coolest. In fact, here's a commercial that enticed me back then. This is Evil Knievel and the Evil Knievel shock-absorbing stunt cycle. You can make him do wheelies, backstands, even mid-air somersaults. And for that big jump, here's Evil, up and over that four-foot ditch. Woo, baby! Evil Knievel sold separately or with the Evil Knievel stunt cycle from Ideal. Oh, man, there was nothing better, man. I was so excited to be able to take that in, show all my classmates about that. By the way, even doing this message, I found that commercial. I got so pumped up, I was going to buy an Evil Knievel stunt cycle. 
Yeah, they're almost 400 bucks, so I didn't do it. I decided, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'll tell about it. And so it was a big deal, right? This whole idea, you get, you get so excited about something, it is easy to be passionate about it. And when you're passionate about something, it's really easy to talk about, isn't it? You think about that in your life. And so that's really what God calls us to walk closely with him, be excited about what God has done in our life, and then just simply as an overflow from our life to be able to talk about it into the lives of others. Now, as we begin this morning, I'm going to take you to Genesis 18. It probably is not where you would think we would start a conversation like this, because what I want to do as we begin this morning is before we ever talk about talking to people about Christ, I want to, I want to, I want to teach us how to pray first. That really is the key to evangelism, being able to share our faith, because, because a number of years ago, it, when I finally caught this, it set me free. Because I always thought that I needed to be really good at knowing how to share my faith. And that if someone didn't come to Christ, it was my fault and I blew it. And understand something. When I caught this, it, it just took all the fear away from me. It is not my responsibility to change somebody's life. I can't change somebody's life. In fact, I can't make a person come to Christ. This last week, one of our uh, pastors was walking through the office and had just been in a session where he's trying to work with a guy and some things and it wasn't going well. And I remember his discouragement. And I, re- I told him what, I, what a pastor told me years ago. He said, Phil, we cannot change people. All we can do is point to the one who will. And can I just tell you that a person comes to Jesus Christ not because we've been that persuasive or we've been that eloquent. Now, certainly, it's good to know your stuff and certainly understand the Word of God. But it is the Spirit of God that draws someone into repentance. It is the Spirit of God that brings genuine transformation in a person's life. A person is changed because the Spirit of God does a work of renewing in their spirit. In fact, Jesus said, flesh gives birth to flesh. It means you can do in your own strength what you can do in your own strength. But only the Spirit of God can give birth, can change the spirit within us. When you catch that, all of a sudden, it's not about me failing or not failing. The only way I fail is by not being used. The only way I fail is if I'm not willing And as I begin to pray for people, I am inviting the Spirit of God to do what only He can do in somebody's life to transform them. And so this first passage is in Genesis chapter 18, and the context is Abraham and Sarah. They are now getting up there in age. Sarah is about 90 years old. Abraham is 99 or 100 years old, right in that ballpark. And they are visited by three individuals described as three gentlemen But you find out as the passage goes on, two of them are angels. They are are angels who are, you'll find it out in chapter 19. And the one individual who is constantly being referred to as the Lord is actually, and I'm going to say it this way and I'm going to describe it for you, it is a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Um, In the Old Testament, there were times, first of all, here's what I, I hope we know. Jesus, Jesus Christ was born uh, uh, 2,000 years ago, but the Son of God is eternal. He's always been, right? He's co-eternal with the Father. So it's not like the whole concept of the Son just came into being in the New Testament. And so in the Old Testament, there are times where you see that the Lord shows up and interacts with people. That is called a Christophany or a theocracy or a, three, three, uh, a theocracy. 
theophany, sorry, theophany, it basically means that the Lord shows up in person. Um, when Jacob wrestles the Lord, okay, that is, that, is, that is the son before he comes into the world in, as we know it, about 2,000 years ago. And during the whole time, every time it says the Lord said, the Lord said, the Lord said, it's actually a person, that third person who is talking, who is interacting with Abraham. So they come and they're sitting down and they don't, Abraham doesn't know who it is right away. And Sarah's getting some food together and she's in the tent. And did I say she's 90 years old? And the Lord says to Abraham, hey, by the way, I'm going to return next year and you're going to have a child. You're going to have a son. And, And by the way, it says Sarah was listening at the tent. It doesn't say exactly like this, but I'm pretty sure this is what happened. Yeah, right. She starts to laugh to herself. By the way, how many would think that's funny? Not my wife. She'd be crying, man. 90 years old. And you're saying, well, 90's not the same age as it is today. Uh, hey, listen, people didn't, this was past the time people were living to eight, nine hundred. She's already getting up. That, it says, by the way, she said, I'm well past childbearing years. She basically says, my, my body is, is, is given up. They are way past what is considered. Abraham's a hundred. You know, sorry, dude, you're way past what is normally in that time frame considered a father. She begins to laugh, and the angel, the, the Lord says, hey, Sarah, why are you laughing? She's like, uh, well, I wasn't laughing. He goes, yeah, you were. And so the men begin to leave. And here's where we're going to pick up the story. Chapter 18. And we're going to go to verse 16. Here's what it says. When the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord that person in the group, said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations on the earth will be blessed through him. Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation, and uh, through that nation comes Christ, who is our provision for sin. So all nations are blessed through him. And he says, for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord Lord, and will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. The more I've read this passage, the more powerful that verse becomes. Abraham remained standing before the Lord. That is the picture of prayer. It is the picture of intercession. Verse 23 says, Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people that are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of the earth do right? The Lord said, okay, that's mine. 
If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. This is mine right here. Really? Okay, Lord. Abraham spoke up. Well, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I'm nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? The Lord says, okay, if I find 45 there, then I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke and he said, well, what if there's only 40 there? And the Lord said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, well, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, if I, if I, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, well, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? And he said, well, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Then the Lord had, when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left Abraham and he returned home. Let me tell you, the more you look at this passage, the more it becomes a passage about praying for people who are in trouble. It becomes you're praying for people who are spiritually far from the Lord. There's no doubt Sodom and Gomorrah is a, is a terrible place. In fact, in chapter 13, it says it was already known as being full of wickedness. There's no doubt about it. But this becomes an intercession where you see Abraham beginning to intercede on behalf of a place that is in real trouble and doesn't realize it. I'm going to share with you real quickly two overriding concepts and then just two points today, which is a minor miracle. Number one, you realize it's God who moves our heart to intercede for the peril of the sinner? When we begin to get a burden for people, when we begin to get a burden for someone, can I just ask real quick here, how many of you, if you're being honest, you know at least one person who they are not a believer, they are far from the Lord? Just raise your hand. Okay, most of you raised your hand. I would dare say all of you raised your hand. And if I ask you this, how many of you know two people? Raise your hand. And you know what? I'll bet if I kept on going, I might ask you how many know 10 people. And by the way, if you don't know 10 people who are far from the Lord, you need to get out a little more. Because there's definitely a lot of people who don't know the Lord. And when you begin to get a burden for them and you begin to pray for them and you begin to have a heartbeat for them, I want you to understand that that is really God that is placing that burden there. It says in verse 16 that when they, re, when they leaned out of the window, that word leaned out and looked down on Sodom. They weren't being judgmental of Sodom. The word means to look intently as, as a hunter looking for his prey. It means that they were consumed in peering in and searching out Sodom and Gomorrah. Now there's a second overriding principle that we've got to understand as we get into the show and tell series, and it's simply this is that never make a mistake that our lost siblings, our lost brothers, our lost sisters, our lost family members, our lost children, our neighbors are in incredible uh, danger. There's an incredible danger, and it doesn't matter if you know you're in danger or not. I am guessing that everyone sitting in Sodom and Gomorrah 
even though they knew stuff wasn't going well, they all took for granted there was going to be a next day. And they all took for granted that God hasn't done anything about it now, even if they acknowledge God, he's probably not going to do anything about it in the future. And it can very easily for us to look at people's lives and to see, and we have a heartbeat for them, but we just assume everything is going to be okay. And I hate telling you this bad news, but you got to understand something. The, bad, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is that he came and he died for our sins and he rose from the dead so that we can have eternal life in him. The good news is so good because the bad news is so terrible. That's why we change the name. We don't talk about hell. We don't talk about destruction. We don't, we don't talk about, we bypass those passages in Scripture i got to be honest, I'm a fairly optimistic guy, and I love sharing the good news, but at the heartbeat is, is that the good news is so good because the bad news is so bad, and those who are not following Christ, they are in incredible, eternal danger. And if we're really going to have God's heart for the world, we've got to understand this is serious business. So let's talk a little bit about interceding for those, those people in your life. More than likely, was a, there was a face that came up. Let's talk about praying for them. The word intercede just simply means that we're going before God on their behalf. So, so when we intercede, we're praying for people. The first thing I want us to see is that intercession is far more powerful and passionate when you have a personal stake in the matter. Now, I want you to see it, and, you, and the only way you're going to really see it is if, we, is, is if we go into chapter 19, verse 1. I'm going to start back on verse 20. Look what it says. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous, that I will go down there to see what they have done, if it is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening and, say the name out loud, Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. Ding, 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 ding. I now know why Abraham cares so much. I dare say I'm not sure Abraham really cared much about that city. I think Abraham knew the definition. I, I think he knew I think he knew the reputation, and I, if I dare say, I don't think he really cared that terribly much about the city. But what I do know is that his nephew Lot, whom he loved like a son, and his family live in Sodom. Now, to understand that a little bit, you have to go back into chapter 11 and 12 of Genesis. You don't have to look there literally, but just go to the last few verses of chapter 11, and you can read chapter 12 and 13 uh, when you get home if you'd like to. But Lot is actually the son of Abraham's biological brother. There are three brothers. Lot's father passes away. And so by virtue, and in that culture, and often what happens in our own country is that when his dad passed away, he is orphaned by the father, but he now is taken in by the family. 
And Grandpa was kind of watching over him. Haran was watching over him. But when Abraham leaves in chapter 12, his father, and he moves to the land of Canaan, it says that Lot went with him. By virtue, Lot is to Abraham like a son. What makes it even more powerful is that, that Abraham didn't have any children. Abraham didn't have any kids. And so some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, either as a grandparent or maybe as a neighbor or as a friend where someone passes away and by virtue, either by, by the child being forgotten by a parent or that child uh, being orphaned by, by the uh, death of a parent, all of a sudden you kind of become a surrogate parent into the chi- life of that child and you are bringing them up and you know as well as I do that your emotions for that child is far more than just simply a relationship. You love that kid and you care about that kid. You want to celebrate their wedding someday. When they have children, it's like you've had a grandchild. That was how Abraham thought about Lot. And can I just tell you that when you have a personal stake, you are far more passionate about making sure that that person is going to be safe. Um, Tornadoes. Tornadoes happen all the time in the United States. And I think most of us have one time or another prayed for a community, got hit by a tornado. What were there, like eight in one week or one weekend uh, in Ohio? And they're terrible. They're terrible. But can I, in fact, I pastored in Wright, Iowa, that in the early 80s, the town was wiped out by a tornado. Um, and by the time I got to this little church in, in 1989, um, the only thing that was in the town of Wright was the church building, which had been rebuilt. Every other business had been completely wiped out, and they just never rebuilt. And then there were a few uh, houses that had been built as well. The entire town wiped off the face of the, of the earth by, by a tornado. We see tornadoes all the time. But let me tell you, in 2007, when a tornado went through my hometown in Napanee, Indiana, took out most of Fairmont homes, which I knew tons of people who worked out, went through my parents' uh, property, destroyed the back half of the property, any building that was on it, took out Roger Goss's home, two houses down from my mom and dad. Now, Roger didn't live there. His mom and dad still live there. But my childhood friend, Roger Goss, his mom and dad's house was wiped out by a tornado. That whole area, there was like a big path that went through there. Let me tell you, all of a sudden, the reality of tornadoes got real. Why? Because it hit people that I really knew. And I hate to say it, but I cared differently and I prayed differently when there's a face attached to it. One of the atrocities that are happening currently in the United States are these mass shootings. Politics aside, I think we're all just devastated when it hits a community and we pray for the community. I think even worse than that are the ones that are aimed towards schools. Tammy and I happened to be in Parkland, Florida the day after those shootings took place uh, several years ago, two years ago. We had just been coming back from a trip in Fort Lauderdale, and actually the driver was just really overwhelmed by it. And we were there, and it was real to us, but it really didn't impact us the same way as it did the driver. But I will tell you, in May of this year, when there was a shooter outside of Denver that was going into a school, 
And that shooting took place, and I didn't know what school it was. All I knew, it was outside of Denver. Later to find out, it was 10 minutes from where my daughter was teaching elementary school. And that her, the shooter still hadn't been found. Do you think this Papa Bear began to pray? Why? Because I had a personal stake in this one. And I'm not, I'm not diminishing our prayer life. I'm not diminishing. See, God put people in your life for a purpose, and you care about them for a purpose, and you are the very ones that ought to be carrying the gauntlet of prayer for them because you have a personal stake. I believe in world evangelism. But God put you in relationship and gave you spheres of influence and put the crazy guy that works next to you at work in your life and the neighbor in your life and your kids and your grand. He put him in your life for a purpose because you are the most natural one to passionately be praying and interceding for their lives. Make sense? That's why I'm so excited about these Wednesday night um, focuses in prayer because one of the things I'm just believing God is going to do is that God is going to pour himself out and we're going to see an incredible uh, number of people that are going to be coming to the Lord. Whether they're in our church or outside our church, that doesn't really matter. It's simply that they're going to be coming to the Lord because people are praying together, interceding on their behalf, and then we're going to see story after story of people who are coming to the Lord in some of the most astounding ways. There's a second principle I want you to catch today, and it's simply this, is that <clears throat> intercession becomes real when you hang around God long enough to catch His love and compassion. When we hang around God and know Him well enough that we actually abandon judgmentalism and legalism and actually begin to catch His heart his love and his compassion. Now that doesn't mean that we're lowering standards. It doesn't even mean that we don't look at something and say that it's wrong. But understand that God loves and has compassion even for the person who is blowing it. And the more you get to understand who he is, the more you understand his character, the more you begin to pray. Do you realize that scripture indicates in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that it is God's will that all people come to know him as Lord and Savior. Now, not all people do come to know him as Lord and Savior, but, it, but God wants all people to know what it is to have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's God's heart. Do you know in uh, what is it, 2 Peter, is it chapter 2 or 3, where it says that the day is like a thousand years to the Lord? You know what I'm talking about there, right? Day is a thousand years. You know why, why he says that? He says, the Lord, the Lord is not slow in acting as some say slow is. He is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. That is the heart of God. So Abraham, while he's interceding, he comes to him and he says... Lord, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the 50 righteous people that are in it? What Abraham is doing is that he knows God well enough to know that it is out of character for him. 
And he's simply reminding God of his character. It happens all throughout Scripture. Moses reminded the Lord of, he interceded for his people and said, Lord, you're not going to really destroy all these people, are you? I mean, you've called them. You've made a promise to them. Uh, Lord, it would, you would look terrible if you did that. I just want to remind you of your character. Daniel reminded the Lord. Even the disciples said, Lord, you're incredibly powerful. Everything belongs to you. So, hey, would you give a little to us? Pour out your spirit on us. And the spirit of God shook that place. Over and over in Scripture, people are praying the character of God. So as you begin to pray for people, and you're praying for that person in your life to be transformed by the Spirit of God and to come into a point of repentance, do you realize you are praying the will of God because it's in His Word? And I love the negotiation that's taking place. Did you see it? Chad, uh, I'm Steve. I'm going to pick on Steve for a little bit. Steve. Is Terry Wedge in here? Raise your hand. I told Terry to sit in here. I like his shoes. I want his shoes. Steve, I like your shirt. And um, I'm, we're going to negotiate for your shirt. Right? So I don't know how you guys do negotiations, but normally I have a basic theory. If the salesman doesn't cry, I paid too much. That's just my, that's my theory. And so normally I would come at Steve because I like the shirt and we're, I think we're the same size. I think we can put both ways. I want your shirt, Steve, and so I make him an offer, but I don't want him to take my first offer, do I? Because if he takes my first offer, that means I offer too much. So I'm going to come at you, Steve, and I'm going to offer you a buck for that shirt. Will that get it for me? No. Okay, what, what would get that shirt from you? And I'd give you another shirt. You wouldn't have, because you're saying there ain't no amount of money that's making me take this shirt off. <laughs> 25 will do it. I would, I would not probably give you 25. Yeah, that's why I would not give you 25. I'll give you three bucks for it. What do you come back at? <laughs> okay, that's a deal. Uh, okay, now what we're going to, that's normal negotiations, isn't it? Does everybody understand negotiations? That's how we do it. I start low. I don't want to start so low that I offend him. He comes back probably a little higher than what he really would take for it. That is the normal way negotiation is done. By the way, it's done that way all around the world. All around the world. I've had to negotiate for taxi drives. I've had to negotiate for shoe shines. I've had a guy, 25, 50 bucks for a shoe shine. I'm not giving you 50 bucks for a shoe shine. And you negotiate backwards. That's just how you do it. That's not how this happened. But I think that's what Abraham was thinking when he began to negotiate with God. And I think what he did is he was thinking, what is the lowest number that I could ask God to spare the city without the Lord being offended? How about 50 righteous, Lord, thinking Lord's going to come back with maybe, what, 500? He looks at the Lord and says, how about 50? And the Lord says, okay. And you know, the number one cardinal rule of negotiation is that once you make an offer, I can't go down. Right? If you just said, okay, I'll take it for a buck, I couldn't go, how about 50 cents? You know, I can't do that. That's, that's, that's rude. So, but Abraham says, oh, well, how about 45 then? And the Lord says what? Okay. 
<laughs> Lord, forgive me. I mean, I'm dust. I shouldn't even be talking to you. But if you do it for 45, how about 40? Okay. Well, Lord, if you'll spare 40, the city on behalf of 40, how about 30? Are you seeing what's happening here? Are you at all? I, I, th- when this began to come to light to me, blew me away. How about 30? Okay. How about 20? Okay. How about 10? Okay, by the way, the Lord never said no ever once in the negotiations. By the way, there's a truth in that. And he stopped at 10. Now, we don't know why he stopped at 10. Maybe he thought, okay, I've pressed it enough. Maybe that's it. Maybe he's thinking, I got this. There's got to be 10. I know six, six right now. Lot, his wife, his two daughters, they're both engaged. There's got to be six. By the way, you find out the two engagements maybe weren't as strong as they thought it was. But, but the thing is, I, I don't know, when, don't you wonder what would have happened if he just said, how about, a, how about one? And here's what I want you to catch, because it's the heart of God. Philip Brooks said it this way. I think it's incredible. Prayer is not trying to push back God's reluctancy. Prayer is embracing his willingness. When you're praying for someone, God is not reluctant to move. They do have a choice. They do have a will. We could talk about why someday. Not everyone who God wants to come to salvation is going to. He just, they, they can resist. They can. Let's be honest. But when the Spirit of God begins to move and penetrate in a person's life, that powerful moving is life transforming. And when God calls, people's lives are impacted. We're going to begin to transition our service because we're going to be celebrating communion today. So as those who are going to be serving in the band come back to the stage, I want to close this because I want to give you a couple of principles as we close. In Ezekiel 22, it's really interesting. It says that the Lord was actually looking for someone who would stand in the gap. Isaiah says that the Lord looked for someone who would intercede, and he didn't find anybody. Let me ask this question again. How many of you know at least one person that doesn't know Christ? Raise your hand. What if you, for the next 30 days, began to every day intercede and simply ask the Spirit of God to begin to transition and move in their life. I'm embarrassed to say this. I had neighbors that I've known that I knew for years needed the Lord. I liked them, had a good relationship with them, never had a chance to really share the Lord. And the Lord put on my heart that I needed to begin to pray for them. And I began to pray that God would open up the avenue
for me to be able to share into their lives and for God to get a hold of them. And you know what's interesting, and I can't remember exactly, I believe it was actually the next day, but I know it was within a week. I was sitting at my table, I was praying for them in the morning before I went off to work, and I got a phone call. It was from them. And their marriage was in crisis, and by that afternoon I had an hour and a half to be able to sit with them and coach them and have an opportunity to, to just simply share what the key ingredient of Tammy and my marriage is. That's a relationship with Jesus Christ. What if we began to intercede? So here's the three little quick points. The Lord prompts us with the need of people. He's the one that gives that burden. Number two, he positions us in their lives for a reason. See, I think God gave you a position in people's lives for a reason because he wants you to be the one who reaches into their lives and he permits us to actually affect the outcome. And I'm going to give you the last thing because not everybody that you want to share Christ with is going to listen to you. People, people can stop you from talking to them about the Lord. But they can't stop you from talking to the Lord about them. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you this morning because uh, this whole passage to me is an indication of your heart. It's your love. It's your passion. Father, my prayer this morning is that we would begin to get a glimmer of just how incredibly compassionate and loving you are. And as we begin to celebrate communion today, the very this very remembrance of communion is a celebration of your love and compassion in our lives. The bread is a picture of your pursuit for us. Uh, it means your physical body, sinless, that was broken for us, that when we take this bread, it's a picture that you gave up heaven for us. And Father, the juice represents your blood. It was shed for us. It was the payment for our sins. So, Father, as we remember you, would we remember your character and would we bask in your love and your compassion and would we celebrate that in our own lives? And it struck me, the Lord, there might be some here this morning, you rose a hand and you said, you know, I know somebody who's not saved and the person you were thinking of was, was you. I mean, you're sitting here and you're saying, I, I don't even know the Lord. I come, I sing the songs, I, I'd like to be His. Can I just encourage you, what a great time to get that squared away with the Lord. The Lord, I am so sorry that I have tried to do life in my own strength. I desperately need you. And I desperately want to be a different person. Would you, would you forgive me, Lord? Would you come into my life? Would you change me? I want to be the man of God that you want me to be. I want to be the woman of God that you want me to be. And so by faith today, Lord, I'm accepting what you've already offered to me. And I invite Jesus Christ in as my Lord and my Savior. As I take communion today, I want this to be a marker in my life 
that says that I'm accepting what God has offered for me. Lord, in these next moments, bring us back to our our promises to you and your promises to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our servers are going to be serving two elements, a piece of bread and some juice. We would invite all of you that are here today, whether you come to Colonial Woods regularly or not, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've accepted him as your Savior, we invite you to be a part of our celebration today. Would you wait for both of them before you take, and I'll instruct us as we do that together. Folks, would you serve us? One of the beauties of the time of communion is that it's one of those things that we as a body of Christ do together. The reason we do that is that it is a It's a picture of mutual submission that we wait on each other. It's a picture of our unity in Christ and the fact that all of us need the cross. All of us need Him. So while we wait for just a few more to be served, that's not a hard thing to do. It's a great time to reflect upon God's gift in our life, His love and compassion. We'll wait not only for those to be served, but also the servers to be served so that we can do this as a family of God. Lord, it's very humbling to stand before you and to think about what these elements really represent. I mean, here in a nutshell is the good news of Jesus Christ. That you literally gave up heaven, the bread. You gave up heaven. You lived a sinless life. You physically died for our sins. juice representing your blood shed for us. The Word of God says that without that, there is no forgiveness of sins. We reflect back to your promises to us. We reflect back to our promises to you. And once again, we say we do. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he said, this is my body, which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake in the body of Christ together.
Following the evening meal, the Word of God says Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is my cup of the new covenant. It's my promise to you. It's my blood. As often as you do this, you're doing so in remembrance of me. Let's partake in the cup of Christ together. And Lord, today we say thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for pursuing us. Thank you that there is a day ahead. Thank you that there is heaven ahead. And thank you that, Lord, you've invited us to be part of this incredible partnership whereby we get to represent, to show, and to tell others about you. Your word says that as often as we're doing this, we are proclaiming the Lord's coming again until he comes. We thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Colonial Woods Missionary Church presents Keys to Confident Living.